Welcome to Transparency Talks, the podcast produced by Volume that focuses on transparency, truth, and trust. I'm Jeff Kelly Lowenstein, founder and executive director of the Center for Collaborative Investigative Journalism, or CCIJ. Today, we are very privileged to have with us Neha Hirve. She's a long-term project photographer, usually based in Sweden, who has moved since the pandemic back to India, uh, her home country. She does uh, fascinating work around man's relationship to the natural environment. She has a degree in filmmaking, but she also, uh, and she brings that cinematic influence into her photographic work. Hello, Neha. How are you? Good. Thanks. How are you? Uh, no, good. Very happy to hear your voice. Thank you for, uh, thank you for making the time. No worries. So can you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, the kind, the kind of work you do? I know you live and have lived in multiple places. So you can just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work and, and the different places where you've been. Yeah, like you said, I've, I've moved around a lot ever since I was a, a kid. And I actually went to university to study film, <laughs> partly because I wanted, mostly because I wanted to, to rebel against my parents at the time. Um, but I, I ended up really, really liking film. And um, as I got more and more into it, um, I started making short films and I got introduced to uh, documentary filmmaking. And I think that's where I found what I, I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Um, I made some documentary films, um, a lot of student projects. Um, but after a while, I, I, I switched to, to still photography, which is more of what I do now. Uh, I'm a documentary photographer, kind of working in the middle of uh, journalism and a more interpretive artistic approach. But I, I just, um, I found myself not naturally gravitating towards photography because although film was a very um, uh, expansive medium and allowed for a lot of creativity, I also found that um, it could get quite frustrating at times to make a documentary film. It takes a lot of a lot of groundwork before you can get up and running. And I, I found photography and a way to sort of avoid that. It was much easier for me to just, you know, go out with my camera somewhere and just start talking to people and doing research. I didn't need a, a whole a whole crew behind me. And can you talk a little bit about because uh, that's one of the, the many things I enjoy about your work. That I, I really was struck by what you were talking about, about kind of that that in-between space of more traditional photographic uh, photojournalism and then that more interpretive art space and how how you think about that, how you how you kind of play with that and bring that into your work because that that to me is a very distinctive element and and, and when my brother, uh, John Lowenstein talked with me about you joining our community. He, he really emphasized that piece. So can, can you just talk about that? Yeah, so I, I went to, I studied photojournalism and um, the school I studied in was, uh, uh, most most of my peers were very traditional photojournalists. And 
they sort of emphasize this whole fly on the wall technique and sort of, you know, the photographer kind of uh, being a neutral observer um, to what was happening. And I, I sort of struggled a bit in that in that space. I was trying to, I spent a lot of time trying to define my own um, voice in documentary photography. And I, I sort of see it as, I do tell other people's stories, but I'm still very much the director. I don't, I don't usually work in a, in a straight up journalistic way. I don't usually do portraits and interview people and then, you know, have the, have their quotation in the, in the, in the caption, for for example, I, I sort of, when I approach a project, I sort of, um, I try and think of it like a storyteller would. I, I, um, I want to create an atmosphere and as, and a a sense of place, uh, with the, with the images I, I create and I'm very much the one deciding what that place and what that atmosphere feels like. I, I often base base it around certain metaphors. For example, um, I I recently worked on a project about tornado hunters in, in the Midwest. And whereas I could have approached it in a very journalistic way, I could have, you know, sort of followed them around and taken their portraits and just, you know, the text could have been just like what they had to say and, uh, you know, them telling their stories in their own words. But uh, instead, I chose to sort of base it around this metaphor of this ancient European legend about um, ghosts and ghost riders in the sky. Basically, it's this phenomenon of, of of a bunch of ghosts charging through the sky, hunting after this legendary wild boar, and they can never catch it. The Aetolian boar, it's called. And I I structured the whole story around around this metaphor. So the tornado became this ineffable creature that all these tornado chasers are desperately trying to catch. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. I, I enjoyed that work a ton. And I just wanted to uh, pick up on that point that you were saying about this kind of intersection of, of place, of feeling, of myth, really, of legend, of story. And I just wanted to read from another one of your uh, projects, just a couple paragraphs, because to me, the writing that you have, even though obviously the, at least on, on, on your site and from what I've been able to observe, the, the visual element is key, but, but I, I really enjoy these two paragraphs. So I just want to read them and then perhaps you respond. In the woods between Cologne and Aachen, secrets are whispered, communications are encrypted, meetings are arranged by nightfall, and barricades are constantly built and destroyed at every entrance point. Here, it always feels like the apocalypse is about to occur. There are people living in this forest somewhere between 10 and 100, no one will say, and they are waiting it out until the inevitable day X, when they will be evicted, their treehouse homes destroyed by the police, and the last of the forest will be cut down forever. I, I really admire that writing and the feel that it evokes. And then the following paragraph that you give gives sort of almost what you might call a traditional news lead. Hambacher Forest in Germany is home to a group of eco-anarchists fighting against Germany's biggest power company, RWE. So can you just talk about that project, but also the role of language and, and uh, in, in setting that feel and emotion and as well as place. The the project that you're talking about is is a project I've been working on for a couple of years in 
in this forest, Hambacher Forest in, in Germany. And for a long time, it's been under threat uh, by Germany's biggest power company, RWE. And they've, um, you know, they've been cutting it down to expand uh, a lignite mine that's just neighboring the forest. And since 2012, I think there's been a group of activists who've occupied this forest and, you know, they've built tree houses and they're living in these tree houses as a way of, um, of protest because if, if they're in these tree houses, if, uh, the police find it very hard to, to evict them. They can't cut down the trees if there are people living there. Um, so I, I've, I've visited that place uh, a few times and, and coming back to this idea of, of journalism versus story, I mean, everything is ultimately story. Like uh, human beings are sort of wired to, to see, see the fables and the stories in, in, in everything, everything, the news is ultimately just, just stories that we, we interpret, that we tell ourselves. It's more than just facts. At the same time, when you're working on a project like this, you can't just have a, a metaphor or fable. You need to give people information, what's happening, because, you know, it was a very important act- activism project and it was really important to, to inform readers and inform the audience, you know, what was really going on, like all the details behind, you know, the, the, the forest cutting and the occupation. So it was this, it's with the text, it was this, um, it was this dance that almost this dance that you're doing, you're, you're coming out and you're seeing this, seeing the essence of the thing, the, this, the fable uh, about these, these rebels who are just living in tree houses and creating this fantasy world in the forest. And then you're zooming in into like the, the nitty gritty details. And then you're coming back out again and reminding yourself that this story is basically a universal human story. And then you're going back in and zooming in on some more nitty gritty details. And then you're coming out again. And that's very much what I was sort of attempting with that, that text, I think. Mm. Oh, very profound. And I'm sorry, Neha, is there some background noise where you are? I'm hearing almost like kind of a high-pitched sound. Is that is that? There possible? are trains. I live next to the train track. I'm, oh, I'm really? Like... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, there's, well, that, that's uh, even better. That's ambient sound then. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I apologize. I've closed the windows. There's, there's not much more I can do. No, no, it's fine. It's fine, actually. That's nice to... That's actually a nice, a nice detail. Okay, so... Yeah, no, it, it, it's very interesting, almost this kind of telescopic sensibility. And uh, what, what's so interesting to me, too, Neha, about your work is that even as you're choosing your subjects intentionally, I feel like there's sort of a quality where you kind of follow yourself uh, where, where topics take you or what catches or you follow your attention, maybe, or you follow what catches you. Um, and then see see where it goes. Am I am I correct in in perceiving that, or uh, how how do you sort of choose your topics, and what are you sort of hoping or thinking that folks might get from the work? Uh, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely on point when you when you say that. I it's for me it's it's really about things that are very personal to me, things that capture my interest, and even the the stories that I tell, the the metaphors that I wrap my stories into are very much um, sort of through through my eyes because uh, even as a journalist, I, I usually don't feel qualified to to tell other people's stories in a way. I, I feel uh, that whatever I could say about another person somehow ends up reducing their story to, to, you know, to this photograph that I took or this little piece of text that I write. And so in a way, 
embracing that and sort of letting the story be as much about me as it is about the the subjects and the people I'm telling the story about. I think that's what that's what shapes a lot of the work I do. It's it's a really interesting point, Neha, and part of the the focus of our of this particular podcast is to really have people talk in this transparent way about who they are and the work they do almost as an act of engendering trust because basically you're you're right in there we obviously you're making selections and so on but you're right in there uh, often as a character either directly as as in the work a little bit of the work that you've done uh at your grandparents house uh during the coronavirus or you can sort of feel your presence in in some of the other projects we've talked about could could you talk a little bit about um i i i really enjoyed the the ongoing uh, documentation of life under COVID nineteen at your at your grandparents' place, moving back to India. Um, can, can you talk about what that experience has been like, and how you decided to turn the camera on on them, on you, and you know, so it's, it's a lot of it's black and white. And so, can you just talk about that 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 lovely kind of quiet project? There's a quietness which I really admire about that as well. Yeah, I think that quietness that you that you mentioned, I think that's that's very much reflective of, of the state of mind that I was in um, during the the whole uh, lockdown and the pandemic. I actually moved back to India just before they announced the lockdown, so I've I've been indoors all this time. And you know, when coronavirus started and the, the pandemic started, like the the first instinct as a journalist is you know go find stories and like. Uh, what can you tell what's happening around you and the thing is I was living with my grandparents and they're very old they're 90 and I couldn't just uh, go out into the street um, I, I couldn't get a, a pass I needed a pass at the time and I couldn't get a pass if I wanted to and I was sort of kind of stuck I didn't really have any stories to tell and then I sort of decided that well I actually did have stories to tell I, I could tell the story of my grandparents and and, and myself because to me, the story of my grandparents is also, it's very much colored by the way I look at them, the way I remember looking at them when I was a child before before coronavirus, before I, I left India. Um, and the way I look at them now, um, which is very different because uh, they're so much older than I remember. They're so much uh, more fragile than I remember, um, especially in the light of the pandemic. I, I thought about their mort- mortality a lot it sort of put me in this quiet, reflective state of mind. And I think I, I started taking pictures. It's a very intimate project. And one of the uh, many things I've learned from my brother is that he often takes pictures of people's hands. And there's an image you have there, if, if I'm thinking of it correctly, where your grandparents, they're holding hands during their afternoon nap. Uh, yeah. And... And it's just to me, it's just a delightful image. You know, the hands there. You know, you can tell it's it's old people's hands, but you also think there's there's a lifetime of connection there. Can you can you talk about that image, especially given what you just said about your experience of coming home and seeing that aging process, and also perhaps the strain of the moment and the lockdown and so on? But can you just talk about that image and that choice of taking taking pictures of their hands? I actually walked in on them. Like I, I walked into their room and they were taking an afternoon nap, and I noticed that they were holding hands, and I almost, I almost couldn't believe it at first because you know they're, they're usually 
so so tired and just worrying about all sorts of you know practical minutiae of everyday life and it was just so delightful to to see this moment it was like this moment of 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 time pure pure timelessness it's just it it reminded me very much of um, youth uh young people in love hold hands and at the same time it's just their hands were so old and they they'd been through you know a lifetime together and they still kind of need each other and support each other through these times it was very it touched me very much does india really feel like home or do you feel like you have multiple homes or <laughs> you know because you you seem like you you live in a lot of places and you allow yourself to be drawn to a lot of places so i'm i'm just wondering about home particularly because it's you're very home now. You're you're on lockdown. You're confined. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this has to this has to be home. I don't. This has to be home. Choice. You have no choice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'd say it feels like home. I I think a lot of places feel like home, but um, I did spend my childhood here. I did. I do have a lot of very strong memories. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other places? I know you mentioned uh, going to school, and my understanding is you you know you you went to school at the undergraduate level in the U.S., and uh, you're, you were living in, working in Europe. But can you talk a little bit about some of those other places uh, that you've been and what, how those have been important in some of the work, the work that you've done? I think probably the most significant place um, in terms of the, the work I make today has, has been a town called Sundsvall in the north of Sweden. It's where I did my master's program, and it was a, a very special, special place I want to say it, it's it's a very small town not much happens there in fact nothing really happens there um it's very dark in the winter it's very cold <laughs> and I spent two years there sort of just thinking about photography and thinking about journalism and the funny thing is all the students who who study there they're they're just coming from all these other places and then they're just completely um, overwhelmed by the fact that absolutely nothing happens in, in Sundsvall. And so the first winter, they all make work about winter and depression and darkness and the snow. And it's, it's just everything looks the same. Um, but that's sort of their rite of passage, you know. Um, if you can make work in Sundsvall, then you can make work anywhere. You can make good work anywhere. And, and what, where did those reflections, that's a beautiful uh, use of, the, of that time, uh, rather than frantically trying to do something, it sounds like perhaps you also joined the rite of passage of doing some winter imagery. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, what 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 was there sort of a, a set of themes or you know central conclusions or kind of uh, what what was the what were some of the results of of that period of thinking and reflection for you in this small community in Sweden? I think I definitely realized that I didn't want to do journalism. It didn't It didn't really bother me in the end that not much was happening. I don't think I, I need things to be happening to make work. Um, it led me in a, in a direction where I very much choose my stories myself. I make them myself. I don't um, see things that are happening around me and just, you know, okay, I got I got to take pictures of that and I got to turn this into a project. I very much uh, I have a very deliberate approach to to what I do. I maybe something interests me far away. I see a news article that that's a bit strange, or 
or I hear about a place that's sort of unusual or a community that's, um, you know, living not in a mainstream way. And I, I sort of start researching that and building a story around it. And I also realized that the second reason I make work is for it to be seen. I know a lot of artists have this idea that you make work for yourself and you should make the work for the work's, work's sake. But for me, it's very important that people see the work and um, get inspired to, to act in some way. And I think this is where I, I tie into uh, a more journalistic approach. I think a lot of the times when, when I'm making this work about Humbucker Forest, for example, or uh, I've done a project um, about a reforestation-based community in Southeast India, and a big driver for me was that people actually saw that work and got inspired to go to these places and, and take action themselves. And that's really important to me, to actually be able to inspire change. It's very interesting what you're saying, Neha, both in terms of that, that second reason, that impulse to try and people to see the work and, and spark some change and, and some response. Um, and I, ironically, even as I think in some ways you said, you know, I looked at the sort of fly on the wall method and I don't want to do that and I don't need tons of things to happen. And tell me what you think about this, but I feel that we're, we're in this moment, uh, partly COVID. I know there's these massive protests going on here in the U S but we're, we're, we're sort of at this moment of, of reassessment of how things have been done. And so in some ways, to me, your works, um, your, your, your insertion of yourself and, 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 and selection, deliberate selection of the topics, and then with the desire to spark change, I feel like that's some evolving component of, of, of journalism as it's as it's happening. So even as you're saying, I decided I didn't want to go in this direction, both in terms of the, the result that you're hoping will happen from people seeing the work, but also that kind of position in which you enter and that desire to create that. I, I could be wrong, but tell me if you, I, I feel like there's, there's sort of a way in which that can be, start to be part of that the shifting journalism umbrella, perhaps. Stories have always, you know, had uh, been told by by the storytellers. It's it's never. I mean, journalism has never been truly objective. It's always someone behind the camera, someone you know, writing the article, and they come with uh, their own background and baggage and and prejudices and ideas and preconceived notions. I think journalism is is sort of um, not denying that anymore. And I I feel that what we're trying to do in our community is really put visual uh investigative and data folks together as as central partners uh from the beginning as a way to try and build something uh a bit new and different in 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 what what consists of journalism and who's telling those stories and how they tell them and how we share them can can you talk a little bit about um how you see uh collaboration in your work, because obviously the documentary work that you did and the film work, as you said, there's a whole crew, you need a lot of people. And, and at least some of the journalism work that I've seen of yours, it, it feels more individual, solitary, you're, you're kind of going out there. So can you talk a little bit about collaboration? Well, by coincidence, a lot of my projects are, are pretty solitary, but I do, I do collaborate. And I think it's, it's so, so essential and so important to create, to create larger projects. Um, I think especially with, with text and, and sort of 
you know, data-driven journalism and text-driven journalism, it's it's so essential to form a partnership with visual journalism because there's things that um, pictures can't do. Um, pictures are sort of very immediate. They're kind of the first layer of the story that you see in a collaboration. Um, and they have a lot of power. They have uh, the power to sort of um, incite emotion in people, but they're very they're limited in what they can uh, inform people of. Um, and I think they need to be the leader into something more, and that something more I think comes from um, text and and you know investigative journalism, data driven journalism. And I think they they actually they form a really essential partnership, and it's. It's not so much that the pictures are illustrating the, the the text or the you know the overall project. It's sort of it's more that they're I think they're giving giving people a lens through which to an emotional lens through which to look at the larger project, and they're giving them a reason to to sort of invest their time and brain power and energy into to reading this you know very long investigative piece that will at the end of the day. Um, give them a lot more than just pictures would. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. Well, thank you. Well, th- thank you very much. Uh, and we're really grateful that you're, you're part of our community. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for having me. It was thought-provoking. All right. Thank you very much for joining us for Transparency Talks, a podcast produced by Volume that focuses on truth transparency, and trust. I'm Jeff Kelly Lowenstein, founder and executive director of the Center for Collaborative Investigative Journalism, or CCIJ. You can find out more about our organization and community at ccij.io. That's ccij.io. Stay strong and stay true. Volume.